You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to be reading Genesis 31, uh, verses 36 to 42. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Jacob. Uh, May you open up our eyes and hearts to learn uh, what you have to teach us today. Um, We also want to thank you in light of this weekend for those who have uh, given their lives for the freedom of our country. And it's a reminder of the fact that Jesus also gave his life for our freedom, too. So we thank you also for Jesus. Um, Please be with us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most common tropes in stories and movies and books is the it's time to go home scene. It's time to go home scene. And I think of, maybe you can think of some examples. I think of Simba from The Lion King, where uh, he was... Growing up with Timon and Pumbaa in the jungle, and then uh, Rafiki appears to him, and Mufasa in the cloud appears to him, and he decides it's time to go home uh, to the the Pride Lands. Um, And then there's uh, Bruce Wayne in Batman Begins, right? He grows up in Gotham, and then he goes on these adventures. He learns how to fight at the League of Shadows, and, uh, and then he decides it's time to go home. I need to go back to Gotham. And then there's uh, LeBron James. He grew up in Ohio. And then he uh, joined the Cleveland Cavaliers, wasn't doing so well. He went to the Miami Heat for four years, had some success, and he's like, it's time to go home. And, um, and then he, he did. He went home, he brought the city a championship. And today we'll be talking about the it's time to go home scene for Jacob. Uh, so we've been following this guy, Jacob, and we've been having the sermon series on his life. And he, if you're not familiar, I'll catch up to the speed. He grew up in the land of Canaan. Uh, he uh, was a little bit of a deceitful character. He deceived his brother. His brother wanted to kill him, so he ran away. And he went to this faraway place called Padan Aram. And uh, he went to this relative Laban. He lived here 20 years. And during this time, he married two women. He had 12 kids. He became very prosperous. And today, we'll be talking about Genesis 31, which is his it's time to go home scene. Um, and today's sermon is titled The Fear of Isaac because uh, 
Jacob twice in this chapter, he calls God the fear of Isaac. And it's very strange because God never takes this name anywhere else in the Bible. You never see this title, the fear of Isaac, anywhere else in the Bible, except for this chapter where it shows up twice. Uh, but we'll be going through this chapter section by section, and it's pretty long, but we'll get there. Um, uh, we'll get through it, and uh, when, we talk, when we get through this phrase, we'll talk a little bit about it. But let's start from the beginning, verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he had gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So as I mentioned, Laban, he was, uh, Jacob was with Laban, working for him for 20 years. And now he's starting to feel like he doesn't belong. Um, his bro- uh, Laban's sons um, are getting envious of him because Jacob is very wealthy now. And Laban is not looking at him favorably. favorably. And so sooner or later, he was realizing something bad was going to happen. And God makes this clear too. He was already thinking about balancing, but God makes this clear. Return home. It's time to go home. Verse 4, so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah, these are his wives, into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and and changed my wages ten times. He's probably exaggerating, but that's what he feels. But God did not permit him to harm me. And so this is sort of a summary of the past 20 years. You have on the one hand this guy Laban who was not regarding Jacob with favor, who was doing harm to him, who was cheating him, manipulating him. And then you have on the other hand God. And God was with him, as Christy said earlier. Uh, God kept his promise to be with him. He did not uh, permit Laban to harm him. He protected him. And so that's sort of been Jacob's storyline over the past 20 years. And he's realizing this. And that's a good word for us today because it's a reminder that Sometimes things don't go our way, but God will provide. And that's, that's, that's what Jacob is p- comparing and contrasting, right? He's saying, this is my life circumstance. These things are happening. These are negative. But God, he says it twice, but God helped me out. God was with me, but God did not permit Laban to harm me. And so it's a reminder that every time something doesn't go our way, it's an opportunity for us to say, but God. You may feel afraid. But God shelters you. You may feel condemned, but God forgives you. You may feel betrayed, but God loves you. And you may have these Laban-like figures in your life who may cheat you, who hurt you, who are working against you. But God is also with you. He is fighting for you. He will protect you. So let's keep reading. We're going fast, right? Verse 8. Jacob, he's explaining how God had been with him, right? And he's talking about this whole thing we talked about last week with the whole speckled and spotted breeding plan. I don't know if... You can just listen to last week's sermon if you, if you missed it. It's an interesting story. Verse 8. If he, this is God, if God said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. This God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up, lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flocks were striped, uh, spotted, and mottled. And the angel of God said to me, in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. So essentially, Jacob is recounting the events of last chapter, but he's recounting them with a different angle, uh, because in the last chapter, it wasn't very clear 
uh, how Jacob came up with this idea and why it was that his breeding plan worked out. And now Jacob makes it clear the reason why it worked is because God was with him and God planned the whole thing. God had blessed Jacob. Even though Laban had manipulated him and conspired against him, God was with him and he provided a way out by providing him with all these prosperous uh, animals, uh, by, by giving, making him prosperous, by giving him these animals. And then God reminds him of something uh, 20 years ago. This is verse 13. This is God talking. I am the, actually the angel of the Lord talking on behalf of God. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So uh, Jacob, he's telling this whole thing to Rachel and Leah, his wives. He's saying, uh, this whole thing happened. This whole breeding plan was successful because God was with me. In fact, um, this was actually a, a, a fulfilled prophecy of what God had revealed to me 20 years ago. Because 20 years ago, when uh, Jacob first ran away from home, um, uh, God appeared to him in this dream and said, I will be with you. Um, this was the whole ladder thing and the angels going up and down. God had appeared to him and said, I will be with you and I will bring you home. That was God's promise to him. And I will make you prosperous. I'll make you numerous. God was promising this to Jacob. And then when, and during that time, Jacob, he woke up. He took the stone pillar. He was sleeping on it as a pillow. He set it up as a monument. And he called that place Bethel, which means house of God. And that day he vowed that if God provided for him the way he promised, he would worship that God. And now he is realizing that God had provided. This whole time God had protected him. He kept him safe. He'd given him a, a, a family, a huge family with 12 children. He had given him a lot of possessions. He had realized God had held up his end of the bargain. So now he is realizing um, he needs to hold up to his vow. He needs to hold up his end of the bargain because God had taken away, he, sorry, God had taken this runaway Jacob who had nothing and he turned him into this person who was, um, he had a large family, a lot of wealth, and he's realizing now he needs to go back home. It's time to go home. Keep going, verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Rachel and Leah, they're on board. Uh, they're, they're like, you know, we they essentially have this choice. We can choose between Laban and our father or we can choose between Jacob. It looks like they're going to go separate ways. We're going to choose to go with Jacob. There's no place for them here anyways. There's no portion or inheritance. They're not treated well by the father. They're going to follow Jacob. Verse 17, so Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padanaram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, moved uh, with a lot of stuff before. It's a lot harder to do that than if you're empty-handed, right? So he has all the stuff, and so he's he, it's like a bit, he's like packing all of this stuff. He's like getting a bunch of U-Hauls camels in those days but uh, and he's moving away to Canaan verse 19 Laman had sorry Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods Laban is preoccupied shearing his sheep so this is the opportune the, the opportune time for Jacob to go and there's an interesting note here that Rachel stole her father's household gods now these household gods they were uh, probably these small figurines um, these uh, images wooden carvings of, of gods, 
uh, possibly ancestors, but uh, most likely gods. And it's not quite clear why she sold them. There's a lot of scholars. They debate why. They, you know, they have all sorts of reasons for that. But I think the main point is not why she took it. I think the main point is to point out the irony of it all, which is that these gods, in comparison to Yahweh God, the God that Jacob is worshiping, which is, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, that these gods were so powerless, so weak, that they were stolen. Okay, they couldn't even, they couldn't even stop themselves from being stolen. So we're going to get back to that because it's kind of, it's kind of interesting throughout this chapter. And I'll be pointing this out. Um, the biblical author He's contrasting Yahweh, the God of Jacob, with these other gods, these gods of the Arameans, uh, which is where uh, Laban lives. Um, And he's depicting Yahweh as this powerful God. He is so powerful that he is with Jacob all the time. He protects Jacob. He rescues Jacob. He delivers Jacob. Um, And in contrast to these household gods who are so powerless, so powerless they can't even deliver themselves from harm. So that's what's going on. Verse 20, and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Here, uh, this is kind of interesting, the author calls Laban, Laban the Aramean. Um, Aram is the place where Laban lived and Aram uh, it's most famous now for being the birthplace of the language Aramaic. Uh, Jesus spoke this language Aramaic. Anyways, uh, it's interesting because twice in this chapter, uh, the author describes Laban as not just Laban, but Laban the Aramean. And later, uh, Laban actually, he named something, uh, a name in Aramaic. Um, and I think the, 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 the point is that the author is intentionally distinguishing Laban from Jacob. He's, he's saying, Laban is through and through an Aramean person. And here, Jacob is fleeing. He is departing. He is removing himself from this Aramean culture. He is becoming a new person. He's about to adopt a new ethnic identity. So I think that's what the author is saying. Here's Laban the Aramean. He has his own culture. He has his own religion. He has his own place, his his own land. And Jacob is leaving it all to adopt something else. So I think that's the significance of this, all right? Even though Jacob lived with Laban for 20 years, it's time for this clean break where he's separating from this Aramean culture. He's going to have a new ethnic identity. And spoiler alert, in the very next chapter, Genesis 32, God actually meets uh, Jacob face-to-face and gives him a new name, Israel, a new, an actual, a new ethnic identity. Okay, so verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean, again, Laban the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. So, Laban finds out that Jacob had ran away, so he's running after him. He chases him down. And the Hebrew verbs here that describes Laban are kind of interesting because they're intentional. Uh, the author intentionally uses militaristic verbs. It says that Jacob fled, and it says that Laban pursued him for seven days. He followed close after him. Laban overtook him. And most of the times when you see these verbs in the Bible, it's talking about battle scenes. And, and it's so, I think what the author is describing is Laban is furious. He's about to wage war on this guy, uh, Jacob. He's furious enough to resort to violence, but God intervenes. And he warns Jacob not to harm 
Jacob. No, sorry, he warns Laban not to harm Jacob. And from verse 26 to 54, uh, Laban and Jacob, they have this long conversation, and it's, um, I want to dive through it, but it's fascinating. I want you to know how this conversation changes over time. Okay, so here's the beginning of the conversation, starting from verse 26. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? It's ironic because he didn't. He asked his daughters if they want to come with him, and they said yes, and it's actually he who was know, very angry and warlike. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you have longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? So now, so notice Laban, okay, he, he's, he's uh, asking Jacob these rhetorical questions, and uh, one after the other, and he's doing so from a position of authority, uh, from a position of power. He is, he is being the father-in-law in this relationship, and he's accusing Jacob of all of these things. He's kind of like this uh, head honcho mafia boss, and uh, Jacob is kind of like the small fry, and he's like really upset at Jacob, and he's giving it to him, Right? And uh, however, even Laban had to admit, and he says, quote, the God of your father. He's, he, because he, he's at this point right now, he's still, he's Aramean, he has his own religion, but he's recognizing that Isaac has his own God, and he's recognizing this new, this uh, God of Isaac, oh, not, not Isaac, Jacob has his own God, and Jacob's God has the power to intervene in even his life. And there's an ironic, it's pretty ironic here, because in verse 29 and 30, Laban himself, he is even recognizing how vastly different Jacob's God is with his gods. Because Jacob's God takes initiative to protect Jacob by appearing to Laban and telling him not to harm uh, Jacob. Meanwhile, Laban's God, Laban's gods, they can't even be found. Right? You see the irony there? So let's keep going. Laban asked Jacob why he ran away, why he stole his gods. Jacob answered, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. And so I think this is key here, uh, because here we learn why Jacob ran away. It wasn't just because he wanted to obey God. At the core, there was fear. He was afraid, just like anybody would be afraid of a head honcho, you know, mafia boss. Jacob was afraid. Um, He was afraid of Laban's brothers who were envying him. He was afraid of Laban himself, this manipulative father-in-law employer. Um, And he thought that Laban would cheat him again, potentially take away his wives. And this is key because this ties into uh, the the title that Jacob gives to God later, the fear of Isaac, right? Jacob continues, verse 32, Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point them out. Point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So here's a little plot twist. Rachel has stolen these gods. Uh, Rachel is Jacob's beloved wife. And uh, Jacob didn't know that Rachel stole these gods. And he is unintentionally giving her this death sentence. And, uh, but now here's my favorite part of the story. Okay, this is verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants. But he, didn't, he did not find them. You know how when you're looking for something, you always look for... Uh, the place where it actually is, you look for last, right? That's going on. He went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. 
Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tents, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of woman is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Okay, so there's a few things going on here. So from our vantage point, this story might seem kind of strange. Like, what, is, what in the world? Why is this story even here in the Bible? But to the ancient Israelites, what's going on is that the author, he's writing the passage sort of like um, a way of giving fighting words to the, to the Aramean gods. Okay, that's essentially what he's doing. You know how in, um, I don't know if you ever watched WWE, but like before they fight, they're like giving fighting words to one another. They're like insulting one another and like saying all these nasty things to one another. I think that's what the biblical author here is doing to the Aramean gods because here's what's going on, okay? First off, he's saying these gods, they're so powerless, as we, as we mentioned, they couldn't deliver themselves. They were stolen, Okay. Uh, but not only that, but you have this dude, Laban, and he, he's blindly looking for these gods, and he can't find them, okay? Laban is trying to bring his gods back home, but he can't. But to top it off, the reason why Laban couldn't find these gods is because Rachel is sitting on them, and the way of woman is upon her. And to break this down, since so we're all on the same page, essentially, she is going through her menstrual cycle. That's what's going on. She's going through a menstrual cycle, so she can't get up. And in those days... Um, uh, women who were on their menstrual cycles, they were considered uh, uh, ritualistically unclean. So it's, not a, so it's kind of awkward even that Laban is even in this tent with her. But she is hiding these gods by sitting on them on her menstrual cycle. So to an ancient reader, all right, this would have been very appalling. This would have been very ridiculous, very awkward, okay? Because, but I think that's the point. The author is going to great lengths to show just how powerful Yahweh is, the God of Jacob is, and just how weak and worthless that these Aramean gods are, that they would be stolen, they'd be hidden, and that a woman who was, going on, who, who was you know, on her period would be sitting on them, and that's why Laban can't find them. And that's the whole point, that, that Yahweh is so much more powerful than any other God around, around the nation of Israel, Right? So here's Jacob's big speech, which uh, Tiffany read earlier, and he doesn't hold back, and now it's his turn. So here's the dynamic change, right, the, the, the tone shift, because now Jacob is asking these rhetorical questions. Verse 36, then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? He's saying, I know, in other words, why do you think I'm, why do you think I'm a criminal? I'm, in, I'm innocent. He goes on, verse 37, for you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your Jews and your female gods have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. In other words, I've taken good care of your sheep. What was torn by, by uh, wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you have required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Um, under Near Eastern law back in those times... If you were a shepherd and you were to hire other shepherds to watch your sheep for you, typically if a wild beast came or if someone got sick and it wasn't the hired shepherd's fault, you would bear the loss of it yourself because it wasn't their fault. But here Jacob is even saying, I was a man of integrity. I chose to bear the loss myself. Verse 40, there I was. By day the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. 
In other words, I earned my marriage to your daughters. I earned my possessions that I got from you. It's not like I stole them from you. Um, even though you stacked your cards against me, I earned them. And here's the climax. This is verse 42. I think this is sort of the theme, the thesis of this chapter. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction in the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So Jacob, he's berating Laban. And uh, during this time period, it's not very culturally appropriate to be berating, to be talking down at your father-in-law like this. But that's what Jacob is doing. And uh, why does he have the boldness to do this? Because he's not afraid anymore. He's not afraid anymore. And that's why he calls God the fear of Isaac, because he realized that this whole time God was on his side, this whole time God was one making him prosperous, this whole time God was the one keeping him safe. And the most appropriate title he can think of for this occasion is God is the fear of Isaac. Um, Several weeks ago we covered uh, Genesis 26, which is, uh, we covered, it was the story of Isaac. And it's pretty interesting. There's a lot of com- parallels between that story and this story. Uh, in that story, Isaac is afraid of this powerful guy named Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech was this king, and, and, uh, but God protected him from Abimelech. And eventually, Abimelech realizes that God is with Isaac. So he makes this covenant, this uh, treaty with Isaac. And Isaac realizes he doesn't have to be afraid of Abimelech anymore. Because God is with him. And here Jacob is experiencing something very similar, but he's experiencing with Laban instead of Abimelech. And he's realizing these parallels between his story and his father's story. He's realizing that just like Isaac didn't need to be afraid anymore, so Jacob now doesn't need to be afraid anymore. If God protected his father Isaac, then God would also protect Jacob as well. If God is for him, then who can stand against him? So So Jacob is essentially saying, the same God that delivered Isaac is the God who delivers me. And therefore, just as Isaac came to fear this God, so I will fear this God too. And um, when we talk about the fear of God, I want to clear something up. Sometimes in um, Christian circles or non-Christian circles, we have confusing ideas uh, when we think about the fear of God. Does it mean that, uh, you know, we have this timid, you know, you know, behave this timid uh you know this attitude of oh if if i I need to do this i need to do this if i don't do this god will punish me i don't think that's the case i don't think that's really the full uh, meaning of the fear of god you know i think there's a story in exodus 1 that can help us understand this in the story of exodus 1 uh the king of egypt is trying to essentially commit genocide uh the hebrews were uh, slaves during this time in the land of egypt and the king of Egypt tells these midwives who are helping these Israelite women give birth. They're saying, he's saying, if you see men, uh, male children, then kill them. And so this is what happens in verse uh, 117, Exodus 117. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And I think this gives us a, a glimpse of what it means to fear God. Because during this time, the king of Egypt was the most feared person possibly on the whole planet. And if you didn't obey him, I mean, that was probably, it was bad news bears for you, okay? So this was, this guy was the most feared person on the whole planet. But it says the midwives feared God and therefore they did not do what what this Egyptian king wanted them to do. In other words, the midwives 
didn't follow instructions. They didn't fear the king of Egypt because they feared God. And I think that's the key to understanding the fear of God is when we fear God, when we recognize who God is, when we recognize his power, his authority, his sovereignty, then it frees us up from being afraid of anything else. Franklin D. Roosevelt, he once said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And I think a paraphrase of that is, don't fear all of these things in life. You may think that all of these things in your life on the outside of you, they're going to destroy you. But the thing that really will destroy you is fear. So remove the fear in your life, and then these things will take care of themselves. What really has the power to destroy you is not these other things outside of you, but the thing inside of you, which is fear. And therefore, if you're able to prevent yourself from having a heart of fear, it won't matter what your circumstances are. It won't matter if your manipulative father-in-law is trying to take away your family. It won't matter if the king of Egypt is trying to commit genocide to your people. You won't be afraid. But how in the world do you not have a heart of fear? How in the world, when things are in turmoil or in chaos, can you choose not to fear? How do we not fear fear itself? And I think the biblical answer is this, the fear of God. Fearing God is believing. I was watching um, uh, VeggieTales this morning. Uh, as Bob the Tomato from VeggieTales says, God is bigger than the boogeyman. I don't know if you, this was in the 90s, one of the first VeggieTales movies, right? God is bigger than the boogeyman. And fearing God is essentially believing that Despite the chaos and the turmoil of your life, God is more real to you, more present to you, more powerful to you than anything else. When the chaos and turmoil of your life is more real and more powerful and more present to you than God, then you have fear. But if God is more present to you, more powerful to you, more, pres- more real to you, than the chaos and turmoil, then you have no reason to fear. And Jacob is finally getting this. You see, Jacob, he had lived so much of his life in fear. Esau wanted to kill him. He feared for his life. He ran away. Laban wanted to take away his family, wanted to cheat and manipulate him. He feared for his life. He ran away. And now he's finally getting it, that he's realizing if he only fears God, then he has nothing else to fear. Because God is bigger, stronger, and more powerful than anything else. In fact, this whole chapter, I think, happened because God wanted to deliver Jacob not only from the deception of Laban, but from fear itself. God wanted to bring Jacob to a place where he would recognize, I no longer need to fear. I think that's the whole point. And I want to suggest that's what God wants to do for you as well. Maybe some of you are doing this whole following Jesus thing because you thought, you know, if you came to Jesus... Uh, God would make your life better. God would change a few things, and sometimes he does. Sometimes God changes your circumstances. Sometimes God changes your relationships. Sometimes God changes your environment. But if that's all he ever did, then you missed the whole point. Because if you want to come to Jesus just so God can change a few things outside of you, change your circumstances, your environment, change things like that, you missed the whole point. Because the whole message of Christianity is not that God is changing your circumstances. Christianity is about God changing you. It's not about God changing the things around you. It's about God changing your heart, God changing your priorities, God changing your, idea, uh, your, your ideas, God changing your 
um, identity even. And let's see what happens in this story. Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these, my daughters, or for the children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. This is deja vu, right? Abimelech made a covenant with Isaac. Laban is making a covenant with Jacob. And here's a dramatic shift in tone because Laban's no longer uh, uh, telling Jacob what to do in this authoritative tone. He's approaching him almost like uh, two equals. He's making a treaty with him. Um, He wants to make amends, right? Verse 45, so Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, which is Aramaic. But Jacob called it Galid, which is Hebrew. Laban said, let this heap be a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid. And Mizpah, for he said, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you repress my daughters or you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Then Jacob said to Jacob, See this heap in the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over to this heap to you. You will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. It's like a boundary, right? Verse 53. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judged between us. So that's what, Jacob, that's what Laban says. And this is all what Jacob says. So Jacob, he actually, we don't even record what he says. It just says, So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country early in the morning. Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. That's the end of the chapter. So Laban and Jacob, they're here making this covenant. And there are differences between them that are being revealed through them making a covenant. And I think that's intentional because the author is showing how Jacob is distinguishing himself from Laban. That he is becoming his own person, his own family, he's becoming his own nation. Right? The f- three things. First, of, first off, they're naming the heap in different languages. Right? Uh, Laban gives it an Aramaic name. J- Jacob gives it a Hebrew name. Secondly, Laban, uh, he proposes that, that this heap serve as a boundary line between two parties. In other words, uh, uh, Laban has his own land. Jacob has his own land. They're having their own geographic boundaries. Which, by the way, this is kind of ridiculous that Laban is even suggesting this because the whole point was Jacob is trying to flee, trying to run away from Laban. So why does he even want to cross back into this? Anyways, so verse, uh, and thirdly, most importantly, this is the most important thing in verse 53. Laban says, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judged between us. In the English, it's not clear, but in the Hebrew, this word judge is the plural verb. In other words, Laban is swearing by different gods. Laban is the superstitious guy, and he is still, he is believing and trusting and worshiping multiple gods. He is lifting up this God and this God, and he's just trying to check all the boxes. He's trying to swear by multiple gods, but... Jacob swears by one God. He swears by the fear of his father Isaac. Because Jacob recognizes, I don't need all these other gods. These gods, okay, I mean, you can't even find them. My wife is sitting on them. I don't need those gods. I only need this one God, the fear of my father Isaac. And that's the third marker of Jacob's family. They are a family that fears one God, and that's Yahweh. So we see here in the story Jacob and his family becoming a nation 
It's a nation with its own language, a nation with its own land. It's a nation with its own God. And that nation would soon be called Israel. In the next chapter, Jacob would have his name changed to Israel. And uh, Jacob's story is actually a foreshadowing of the story of Israel. Hundreds of years later, we would find out that the nation of Israel, they would also be in foreign territory, this time in Egypt. And uh, Israel would labor there as slaves, similar to how Jacob would labor under Laban for 20 years. Uh, But Israel would be here for 400 years in the same way, just as God delivered Jacob, God will also one day deliver Israel and bring them to the land of Canaan. And just as Laban, he came all the way out to stop Jacob, to try to bring him back, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he would bring his armies out to try to stop Israel, prevent them from escaping. But God would demonstrate very clearly, in the same way he demonstrated to Jacob here, that God, that God is with them, he's going to protect them, he's going to keep them safe. God would demonstrate very clearly in the story of the Red Sea, when he part of the Red Sea and the Israelite armies were destroyed, that the God of Israel is more powerful than the gods of Egypt. And that story, the story of Israel's exodus, escape from Egypt, is a foreshadowing of our story, of our story today. You see, all humanity from the dawn of history, we at one point in time lived in the Garden of Eden, but all of humanity were exiles from the Garden of Eden. We left home, in a sense. And we had been living in this foreign land, and we were all slaves to sin. But 2,000 years ago, God delivered us. He invited us to leave our captivity He invites us to come back home. And this home is called the kingdom of God. And maybe some of you, you've made that decision already to leave the life of sin, to be obedient to the call of God, to start making your way to the promised lands. But just like Laban, just like the Egyptian armies, sin is in deep pursuit. Sin is always chasing after us. Sin is always coming at us, trying to get us back. Sin doesn't want to let us go. But just as God was with Jacob, and just as God was with the nation of Israel, God is with you too. God will deliver you, God will protect you, and God will show you that if you fear him and him alone, you have nothing else to fear. Maybe some of you here um, have not yet made the decision to follow God out of your life of sin. Maybe you haven't committed your life to Jesus, and if that's you, I invite you to hear God's call. He's inviting you to come back home. He's inviting you to leave your, your slavery to sin, to have this clean break, to have this new identity, to join this new family, the church. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. You can be a child of God. Maybe some of you, at one point in time, you've already made that decision to follow God, to be obedient to this call, to start making your way to the promised land, but sometimes you still live in fear. Maybe you fear losing your loved ones like Jacob did. Maybe you fear uh, losing your reputation or you fear losing the approval of certain people in your life. You fear losing your security and money or whatever it is. If that's you, I want to remind you, God doesn't just want to deliver you from your circumstances. God wants you to deliver you from your fear. So I invite you to step out of your fear and step into the presence of God because God wants to change not just the things around you. He wants to change you. Please stand as we uh, move into a time of communion. And the time we're going to be taking communion, and what the communion table represents is this covenant that God made with us through Jesus. 
Just as Laban made a covenant with Jacob, God also made a covenant with us. He initiated at the Last Supper when Jesus took the bread, he broke it and said, this is my body broken from, for you. And he took the cup and he drank it. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. And unlike Laban's covenant, which was a covenant, a covenant of separation, a covenant that, that defined boundaries, this covenant is a covenant of reconciliation. It's a covenant that brings us to God. This covenant ensured by Jesus' death and resurrection ensured forevermore that the separation between God and humanity is no more. It's been bridged, and we have been restored and reconciled. And just as Jacob, he could look at this heap of stones, and he could say, I remember this covenant I made with Jacob, uh, with Laban. We can look at the cross. The cross is our monument. And we can look at the cross and we can remember the covenant that God made with us. Why do we look at the cross? Because in order for God to buy us out of slavery, in order for him to rescue us, he had to pay a price. He had to ransom us. Jacob spent 20 years to get get himself out of slavery. God spent the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, to buy us out of slavery. So if you're a follower of Jesus, come line up on either side. Uh, Take the bread, dip it in the cup, eat it there. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to consider the sacrifice of Jesus. Consider how Jesus died to set you free. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have paid off our debt. Our debt is no more, has no claim on our lives because Jesus paid the ultimate price by dying for us. And because he did that, you invite us home. We can leave this life of fear, this life of slavery, this life of sin. We can embrace this new identity, this new place, this church. We can embrace you. God, some of us, we've been like Jacob. We've been on on the run for so long, like the prodigal son. God, you're inviting us to come back home. So regardless of what has happened in the past 20 years for us, regardless of what has happened last night, God, may we see your invitation. May we respond with excitement and joy, knowing that this is what we've wanted this whole time. May your love be more real to us, more present to us, more powerful to us than anything else in this world, because perfect love drives out fear. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.